Smashed into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin, lovely finish. Oh, yes, delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity, Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English. And tonight, or this morning, or this afternoon, wherever you are, including the panelists, we are making history. Because for the first time in the five-year history of Le Bourgeois, we are bringing you an episode from the middle of an international break. Now that doesn't make it all that simple because we have to cast our minds back and think what happened already in round eight of the Ligue 1 season. But one thing I can promise you is that today we're going to keep it short. Now, I did promise this last time out. We went for an all-time record length. But uh, we'll still have all the good bits. Luke Entwistle is going to tell us all about Monaco's latest Youth Academy talent who needs Elias Bensigir when you've got Magnes Akliush. Jonathan Johnson is going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know and more about promoted Luav, including their coach, Luca Elsner, who are giving a very good account of themselves so far on their return to the top flight. And of course, Professor Andreas Evagora is here for our history lesson. He's taking us back to when Montpellier stunned Carlo Ancelotti et al. to win the most amazing Ligue 1 title upset in recent history. But we're going to start with a quick look back at the round that was 10 days ago now. And the Côte d'Azur is still the place to be, with Monaco and Nice first and second, Paris Saint-Germain sitting menacingly in third. Marseille got back to winning ways, but you can't say the same, for Olympic Lyonnais still without a win. You can catch all the conversation every day of the week about Ligue 1 on Twitter or X, as it's now known, at Ligue 1 underscore ENG for English. And of course, like, subscribe, follow and recommend Le Bourgeois on all your podcast platforms. And of course, there's all the news, interviews, videos, highlights and everything else you need on Ligue1.com. Okay, well, look, we're going to go straight into the action um, and we'll do the introductions as we go. So we're looking back at round eight of the season, um, a round that sees Monaco still in top spot. A great 3-1 win over Reims, Ismail Jacobs with his first Monaco goal and an assist for Wissam Ben Yedda, who hit his fifth of the season to go second on the scorer's charts. He's always there or thereabouts. And Follerin Balogun. Scored against his former club, of course, which meant the hands up, no celebration goal when uh, you're obviously happy to have scored, but you're not allowed to show it. They stay one point clear at the top over second place. Nice, Luke, you're the man on the Côte d'Azur. So tell us, Monaco, can they keep this up? And the same question pretty much for Nice, sitting there in second. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the uh, Fuller and Balogun celebration and the fact that he obviously held his hands up, but does it really count if you've got such a beaming smile on your face? He's clearly absolutely <laughs> loving it. Um, but no, he's obviously hit the ground running. Uh, Wissam Ben is still scoring. And I think you look at their attack and you say that if their attack can keep being as potent as it currently is and has been since the start of the season, then there is hope that this can continue. I think that... 
Monaco, the issues are further back. They have been since the start of the season. They were towards the end of last season, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better, I think it's fair to say. And for this upcoming round of fixtures, it looks like they're going to be losing a few more members of that defence as well with suspensions, injuries. And when the Africa Cup of Nations comes up, they're going to lose also some more players in that region. So I think the case is, can Monaco just basically keep outscoring their opponents? Because, I mean, that is... That is football. That is the, the aim of football. But basically, they are not going to be keeping too many clean sheets, it feels, this season. So it's can their attackers keep being prolific and keep scoring? I think that's that's the case. And then when it comes to Nice, uh, Nice is actually the complete opposite problem uh, where you've got very, very solid defence, as they had last season, as they also did under Christophe Galtier. They've had for many years a very solid defence and a very, yeah, defensive mindset and I think it's getting out of that and getting used to what Farioli who's asking them to be a little more expansive getting used to to those demands and I think you're seeing mixed results I think against teams that do want to play that against teams that want to press and want to also score themselves I think you're seeing these play very very well obviously PSG and Monaco are the obvious examples and against sides like Brest who you know are right up there as well but who themselves um you know, th- their aim is not to be in the Champions League and their aim is now probably going to be can we keep in the top half against teams like that who do sit deep. Uh, I think we've seen quite a few issues. So I think, yeah, opposite issues for, for both Cote d'Azur clubs. And I think that Monaco out of the two have the, the better chance of sustaining something resembling a title challenge. That's interesting because, I mean, modern football is all about going for it and scoring goals and pressing high and being aggressive and tactically... Uh tactically aggressive but traditionally in football we always say defenses win championships goals attackers win matches defenses win championships and i just think with nice if they've got that solid defensive base it's hard to deny they have the quality up front i mean terran moffy has goals in him gaten laborde is a is a is a good clever forward as well they've got they've got a, a bit about them that perhaps it'll be easier to flick that switch than than otherwise other important point that we've raised there in, in our very first point, and I'm already heading off 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 track. But JJ, who who we've had some classic examples of former players scoring against their club and the, the hands up thing. I think Emmanuel Adebayor is probably holds the the, the ultimate prize for doing the opposite of that. Um, but Kylian Mbappe loves scoring against Monaco. Like that's it, and he's come through the, the ranks there, but every time he scores. If I recall, because I went to Stade Louis II for his first game with PSG after playing for Monaco, it stems from a bad reception after he's decided after he decided to leave Monaco because he played for Monaco. If I recall, against PSG in the Trophée des Champions in Morocco, which I was also at when Dani Alves scored that stunning free kick, uh, and then by the time the the first league game rolled around in the Principality, he was on the other side. And yeah, I think that's sort of where the where sort of the the poor reception and the motivation to celebrate against Monaco originated from. Luke, I think that I mean you're talking about Adebayor. What about Mohamed Bayo a couple of weeks ago when he scored against his formative club Clermont Foot? I mean it was an incredible celebration. Now obviously on loan at Le Havre from from Lille, and it wasn't just a I'm going to celebrate. It was running towards the fans, you know, both arms out sliding chest out you know it was he went the full nine yards it was uh it was a proper celebration was that his, uh, was it his first goal since leaving clermont though <laughs> almost <laughs> <laughs> obviously yeah i mean there's, there's a context with with the very very difficult spell that that jj's 
referring to there at Lille that really did not go his way. So I think there's there's a little bit of relief there at the very least. But um, but yeah, that was an interesting way to to celebrate. I have to pick you up, JJ, on another on another point. Well, not pick you up, add add on, embellish that uh, Trophée des Champions, which was at the Grand Stade of Tangier. Um, that win, I was with Paris Saint-Germain at the time. We travelled there. We had the game. I think it was off the back of another trip. Had we just come from China? I think we'd just done pre-season in China and this was like three weeks and this was the last game and everyone at the end of a pre-season tour, a week before the start of the season, you just want to go home. And, um, and so the game was played and Monaco are about in this big corridor tunnel underneath the stadium the Monaco team bus is there and about 50 metres. And the game had been a little bit spiteful. There'd been a little bit of back and forth in if, for the Trophée des Champions. And the Paris Saint-Germain bus was here. And then everyone gets on the bus and everyone's about to, about to leave and we're all about to go. And then we hear that the Paris Saint-Germain plane is not ready. There's a problem. And then Monaco hear the same thing. And these were two separate planes. And we sat underneath the stadium just uh, mingling with Monaco, Paris Saint-Germain, the players moving around, um, going for a walk around until 6 o'clock in the morning underneath the stadium where nowhere to go at the end of three weeks of being in China and travelling around and, and all this sort of stuff. And all you wanted to do was go home and it was just a killer. And then we got home at like 9 o'clock in the morning the next day. Yes, we won the Trophée des Champions, but it was a, it was a very tough evening. Speaking of Paris Saint-Germain. JJ, I'll come to you quickly on this one on another couple of games from from round eight, if you can cast your mind back. Um, We'll stick on Paris Saint-Germain because this was a good result. This was a a, a 3-1 victory over Rennes in Rennes, a Rennes hitherto, like Nice, undefeated uh, before this round of matches as well. Um, We will have a little chat about a reaction from Luis Enrique towards a journalist post-match as well, which lives up to his reputation that he brought from Barcelona, where apparently he had uh, more than regular run-ins with, with journalists in Spain as well. But Kylian Mbappe didn't score, JJ. We've since seen with Les Bleus that that's not a problem because he he once again showed that he is without a doubt the best striker in world football. But what did you make of, of this match against Rennes? And, uh, and I'll also get you to tack on the end perhaps a little bit about Marseille and a first win for... Gennaro Gattuso. It was a it, it was a really curious uh, sort of final few days for PSG heading into that international break because obviously they came off the back of that uh, you know chastening defeat uh, away at Newcastle in the Champions League. Yet they then produced uh, you know one of their better results of the season uh, against a club that has really become one of their bogey teams over the the last couple of years. You know to not only go to Rennes and beat them, but to to take away their unbeaten record. Uh, you know it didn't look particularly favourable on paper heading into the game. Uh, you know, but PSG produced a, a, a good performance. Vitinha scored a stunning goal. Uh, Hakimi's uh, strong form continues uh, along with that of Warren Zaire Emery as well. And yeah, it was. Um, it was just a funny couple of days, really, sort of heading into that uh, international break. Again, it's kind of in line with what PSG's season has been so far, where it feels like there are, you know, progressive steps being made, but also at the same time, there are sort of 
signs for concern obviously you know getting blown out in the way that they did against Newcastle in the Champions League not ideal uh, and then to have Kylian Mbappe who by the way by the time PSG kick off against Strasbourg in Ligue 1 after the international break he'll have gone over a month without a goal for PSG at club level which is yeah quite something especially when you consider the the miss that he had sort of five minutes from the end of that game which was very unlike him but you know it's um you know i think it's it again it's a, another step in the right direction for psg in terms of the the chemistry and it was important for them to show a reaction after that newcastle defeat but yeah equally very uh very bizarre um sort of couple of days where you go from such an unexpectedly heavy defeat to uh, you know a very convincing win over an opponent that's been very difficult to beat over the years i'd completely blacked out that Newcastle result from my mind. I, when you when you started talking about it, I thought, oh, my God, that, that actually happened. Um, yeah, and it's even more surreal when you're watching it from Australia because you're up at 4.45 in the morning um, without any sleep watching it and just thinking, why did I get up for this? And why are we only playing two in midfield away in the Champions League? And, and why don't you change it? But anyway, full credit to Newcastle. Um, revenge is a dish best served cold. It will come in Paris in, in a few weeks' time. Um, Marseille and uh, Gennaro Gattuso, JJ, um, important for them to get back after what had been a really difficult run. Uh, Marcelino came out in the press and, and had plenty to say as well um, in the last week about how he'd never seen anything like it. Gennaro Gattuso surely is the only man that, that, is, that is even capable of, of getting, grabbing the Marseille supporters and the team and the club and saying, let's go, Malakias, we're going in this direction now. Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned last time uh, when we were talking about Marseille that it's obviously it's a club that we, we know very well that it's emotionally charged. And the, the managers that can make that emotional connection with the fan base generally tend to do better. You know, Marcelo Bielsa, a good example of that. And Gattuso despite not being at the same level as Bielsa sort of tactically uh, and in terms of his ideology, there's no doubt that he does have that ability to, um, you know, make that emotional connection. And I think that's going to be very important. Unfortunately, I was trying to avoid talking about Marseille's convincing win over Lav, given my uh, section <laughs> that's coming up later on, on Lav and uh, Luca Elsner. But no, it's a, important for them to get the, to get that victory and to, to sort of start what could potentially develop into a into a very good series of results because as we all know uh, you know results are the strongest currency in, in football uh, you know especially in a place like Marseille and if Gattuso can get the fans on side one by showing you know his emotion his passion and two by getting the team uh, you know to start picking up points and winning games and moving in the right direction uh, you know that's an important step and it's been a strange old time for Marseille as well because there's been more departures since Marcelino left uh, more speculation about sort of upheaval behind the scenes at the club uh, Javier De Balta the, the sporting director has moved on now uh, and a lot of people are sort of changing positions and, and being recast behind the scenes so you know quite clearly what Marcelino was alluding to uh, you know is sort of being addressed in some way uh, by the club's hierarchy. Luke, Leon, Luke, Leon, Lil, we're going to get you into the L's now now Luke, Leon, uh, Nuema with his first goal the Ghanaian uh, prodigy for Leon, a couple for Alexandre Lacazette but an Italian coach that hasn't so far been able to make that emotional connection with the fans because that wasn't enough. There was a youngster by the name of Ellie Junior Krupi who got a couple for himself and Lorient, who'd been a little bit down in the dumps, 
came away with a 3-3 draw. Leon are still second from bottom. Leon still don't have a win. Yeah, I mean, Leon still without a win. Um, I mean, just finishing up on, on the Marseille point, I mean, you, you're talking about Gattuso kind of making that connection. There's clearly a connection, I think, already between those players. But, I mean, I was at the Velodrome for the match against Brighton. And I think it's just, you know, the atmosphere around the club isn't maybe at its best. But, you know, he wasn't that warmly received when his name was put over the loudspeaker. But I, th- I think he'll get there. And I think results like that against Love and, and being as he is on, on the sideline, I think will we'll go a long way. Uh, that's not really the persona necessarily of Fabio Grosso, who um, has less experience in Gattuso, but has maybe shown more in terms of tactics and ideology during his time in Italy. So I think there is a bit of hope that, you know, changes on, on the way, but the the noises aren't very positive. I mean, for the first time, Grosso talks about the side being in a relegation battle uh, after that draw against Lorient, and, and they are. I mean, when you look at Lorient, the form that they've been on, and the way that we're speaking about them as being one of these clubs very much in this relegation battle, it's, it's hard not to put Lyon in there as well, despite the incredible talent. I mean, Nuama is a player that a lot has been spoken about him hasn't necessarily shown it straight away but he will take time to adapt and he does look like he's got incredible technical ability so i i think that he is a player who who can become a key player for them going forward and obviously there are players like lacazette Tolisso. there's experience in there there's great youth in there but you think that that's a great you know you think that's a great mix but it's just not necessarily happening at the minute uh a little bit worried for them um and then for lorient a team that had gone so long without well without a victory and Krupi is a player who looks you know he looks like a real find already I saw Bakayoko comparing him to Mbappe uh, post-match which is obviously very high praise indeed and a long long way to go but I think his long range strike the composure to beat the man to take the time to get it onto his stronger foot you know into his arc and then just put that in the top corner I thought that's extremely impressive for a player of his age so he is probably currently the player in terms of prospects to keep an eye on in this league on season. Well, if we look at if we look at recent uh, Marseille coaches that have created that that link, there's you know, and not and not so recent, but Roland Courbis, Didier Deschamps, Jorge Sampaoli, Eric Gerets was another that had this uh, you know this 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 fire about him. Marcelo Bielsa, of course. Compare that to Olympic Lyonnais, and there are a couple of crossovers. Alain Perrin. And uh, Rudy Garcia, who had both, but you know, Remy Gard, Paul Le Guin, uh, now Fabio Grosso, Jacques Santini. Uh, it's not quite the same passion and fire in the belly, is it, that, uh, that gets Leon across the line or that gets uh, Olympic Marseille and their fans happy? Mind you, it doesn't mean that either sets of fans are happy at the moment. Um, there was a 1 1 draw in the Derby du Nord between. Uh, Lens and Lille, and of course, uh, not great scenes. Well, great scenes on the football pitch for for ninety minutes, just about with Montpellier against Clermont. Some fantastic goals, some brilliant football. Montpellier looking like they were getting back to winning ways with a with what was going to be a four two win, and then um, a brain fade by one of the Montpellier travelling supporters uh, through a firecracker onto the pitch that exploded near the Clermont goalkeeper, Maury Dior, who was uh, taken from the field, the referee, um, ultimately abandoning the match, saying that Maury Dior, the Clermont goalkeeper, couldn't continue. Um, the firecracker that was thrown came from the away fans. It's not dissimilar 
um, in many respects to uh, Mess Leon from a few years ago, where Anthony Lopez was temporarily deafened by a by a firecracker that was thrown on that match. Um, well, I think it was replayed in the end, wasn't it? Because Mess were leading by goal to nil when their fans did that as well. It's very a really similar situation here with Montpellier fans. Um, Laurent Nicolin, the Montpellier president, was absolutely furious and called his, you know, once we find this brain-dead supporter, we're going to get him thrown out for, for life. I mean, three points for Montpellier are a little bit more important than at another club perhaps. And what I really like about Laurent Nicolin and Lulu Nicolin, his dad, was the same. We're going to hear about um, that great Montpellier side that won the league in 2012 coming up soon. But they never took any crap, whether it was from opposition players or coaches, but from their own fans either. And and Laurent Nicolin seems to have the, the same DNA, obviously, as his dad. Um, and, it's, and it's good to see that they're, they're, they're sticking by their guns. That decision, it has been announced by the, the Disciplinary Commission for the LFP, is going to be ruled on the uh, the incident on the 25th of October. So not before the next round of matches, but in between the two, um, we will know what is held in store for, for Montpellier against Clermont in what will almost certainly be, if the match is not uh, replayed, almost certainly uh, to be three points for Clermont, I would think, on precedence. Um but you never know what could happen with Montpellier, who were leading 4-2 with the game nearly finished. Any comments on that one, guys, before I wrap up on round eight? All good. Forever hold your peace. Nantes got up over Strasbourg by two goals to one, a big away win for them. We've spoken about Nice 1-0 up over Metz and Monaco, both with away wins on the Saturday. Brest were held 1-1 by Toulouse. Lyon's 3-3, Lens 1-1, Paris Saint-Germain. We've been through the entire round of action, which means on the league table, it's Monaco who are a point clear of Nice, who are a point clear of Paris Saint-Germain and Brest. The Pirates still there and they play each other in a couple of weeks' time as well. Reims are in fifth place, a further two points behind. Then come Marseille, Lille, Rennes, Nantes, Toulouse. Strasbourg into the bottom half of the table. Montpellier with a possible uh, three points in the offing um, against bottom club Clermont. Le Havre are there in 13th place. Lens are on the climb. That's two wins and a draw in their last three. Three games undefeated after that disastrous start to the season with just one point after five games. Uh, Olympic Lyonnais looking enviously at how Lens have managed to turn that around. And... They beat Arsenal in the Champions League as well to boot. Metz and Lorient are sitting just above the relegation zone. And then it is the only two sides without a win still this season. Olympic Lyonnais and Clermont Foot. Very quickly, gentlemen, for the first time, because we are in the international break, Les Bleus are through to Euro 2024. Um, JJ, what have you made of their performances and the... Uh, their two victories and, well, victory and then one to a friendly match against Scotland to come. But what have you made of this uh, this international window? And tell us a little bit more in particular about your love for that second goal by Kylian Mbappe. 
Yeah, phenomenal strike, and and what a way to 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 announce that you're definitely not out of form because you know the question was starting to be raised after uh, you know a fairly dry spell with uh, with PSG and sort of speculation over whether he was fully fit or not. Uh, I think overall it's been a very impressive uh, qualification campaign for for Le Bleu. You can't argue uh, against it. You know what a reaction to the heartbreak of losing on penalties in the World Cup final. Uh, at the end of 2022, uh, you know, they only conceded their first goal in the entire qualification period in that game against the Dutch, sort of five minutes from the end. Uh, you know, Didier Deschamps really has gotten a strong reaction from, uh, from from the players, from the group. And it's difficult to argue at this moment in time that they're not sort of early favourites heading into next summer in Germany when, you know, OK, you look at the likes of Portugal, who have also been very impressive uh, in terms of their performance in qualification. Uh, n- slightly different given that they play more games because their group is uh, is bigger by one team but equally at the same time you know for apart from that friendly defeat to germany uh, you know it's been very impressive so far in 2023 for france uh, you know and obviously they'll hope to to sign off uh, by avoiding any further defeats uh, between now and the end of the year but uh, you know things look very good uh, at this moment in time uh, for france on the international stage All right, time to keep moving. Now we are going to go to our first feature of this episode of Le Bourgeois. That was Jonathan Johnson speaking. We've got Luke Entwistle here as well. I'm your host, Robbie Thompson. Luke, we know you're down on the south coast. We know you keep a very close watch on all the clubs in the south of France, but in particular, AS Monaco. We've seen how good their youth academy is in, in recent seasons. Obviously, Kylian Mbappe is the figurehead for that. But every season, there seems to be a, a, a new young player who, who bursts out of the ranks. We thought we were going to be talking about Elias Ben-Seguir at the start of this season after his uh, impressive end to last season. With a little injury that's kept him sidelined, we haven't seen so much of him as of yet, but uh, it wasn't long before someone else caught the, uh, caught the eye. So let's find out a little bit more about Magnus Akliush. When you think of forwards who have come through AS Monaco's prestigious La Diagonale Academy in recent years, you likely think of Elias Benskier, and for good reason as well, given the way that he burst onto the scene in the second half of last season. However, that is now beginning to change, and the reason for that is Magnus Akliush, a player who has been on the lips of fans and of people around the club for many years. But given his failure, I suppose, to break into this first team, to consolidate a place in this first team, there were doubts as to whether he would ever make it as a first-team player. I think those doubts are now beginning to dissipate slightly. At the start of last season, it was a much less rosy picture. Sofiane Diop, Diop had just left, and Philippe Clermont had said that in the limited minutes he had seen from Akliouche and from what he'd seen in training, he very much warranted more minutes that season. That was what was expected. However, that is not what we got. And once again, he was he was basically a backseat passenger for most of the season despite having a few starts and coming off the bench on a semi-regular basis he didn't have the impact that maybe the club wanted certainly not the impact that he would have wanted either but that is now beginning to change and absences have played their part but also Akush seemingly has the trust of new manager Adi Hutter and that cannot be underestimated he was brought on in the first game of the season against Clermont with Monaco leading 3-2 and he got the proverbial monkey off his back by scoring his first goal in Ligue 1 Uber Eats, Monaco's fourth, and putting the game to bed. 
he has since gone from strength to strength and has started to clearly work on some of the weaknesses within his game. Akfuj is a player who is technically extremely gifted, has an incredible first touch in particular, and is great in tight spaces. But there are weaknesses in his game. And one of those is notably his finishing, which uh, it was not a problem against Olympique de Marseille, I think it's fair to say, getting two goals, both of them brilliant finishes, and also getting an assist for Feller in Balogun as well. So he's showing great growth under Adi Hutter. And he is now really putting himself in the conversation because great competition still exists within this side. There is notably four players for great first-team options for just two first-team spots. And Hutter's system has helped Akkuj, I think, break in because, you know, he likes to play as a number 10. He's not a wide player as he was often deployed under Clemel. But Hutter, with his two number 10s, there are two positions up for grabs. And okay, Golovin, Minamino, I think that they're the two front runners and you've got Ben Seguir now returning. But Akfuge is now an academy product who is really putting his name in the mix. He is not getting ahead of himself. He, he is currently on France under 21 duty and has just been speaking about how it's so important for him to be decisive every time he gets on the pitch to really make his mark when he gets his chance and to make the most of the minutes that he has. Because d even despite his clear growth in his game, the, the weaknesses that have been worked on over these months and years, there is still great competition there. But I think at least at this point, we can say that he, he has very much put his name in the hat to be one of those two starting number 10s under Adi Hutter. And when you think about great forwards that Monaco are producing, great prospects who are also getting many minutes for the first team, you think of Ben Seguir, but I think now you also think of Magnus Akliush. JJ. A little reaction to that. You've been in France for, for you know, nearly 20 years now watching these this incredible production line of youth talent that comes through every season. I mean, it's called the League of Talents. Every other league in Europe benefits at some level from this incredible production line of, of French talent. We know that it's second only to Sao Paulo in terms of production talent for, well, that's Paris, for a, a, a basin of production talent. France has more players, along with Brazil, playing Champions League football than any other country by some distance. Um, and this is just the, the latest example of it. If you look at Thierry Henry with the France under-21 squad, I mean, it's full of... There are 17-year-olds in, in that squad that are all playing Ligue 1 football for Warren Zaire Emery. He's playing Champions League football. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very exciting time. It's, I mean, there's, there's rarely a dull moment in terms of sort of talent development uh, in the French game, but it is a particularly exciting batch of players, you know, listening to, to Luke uh, talking about Akliush, but, you know, you know, look at some of those other talents as well. You mentioned Zaya Emery, you've got Ryan Cechi. It's not going his way at Lyon at the moment, but still a very exciting talent, uh, you know, and some of the, the, the other uh, you know, sort of younger gems in there. I know Kelly Moendo came off the bench. You've got Matisse Tell, and there's already some speculation that Germany might try and naturalize him if he doesn't get called up to, to France at senior level, which I think is a bit optimistic given sort of the, the way that his development has gone so far. You think they're perhaps... going off a little too soon? Is that just <laughs> a little too early, maybe? <laughs> oh, absolutely, I agree. And you think as well about sort of the fact that we're probably not going to have Olivier Giroud around much longer. Uh, you know, there are going to be berths opening up in sort of the, the attacking positions for France as well uh, ahead of the 2026 World Cup. So I think it's only a matter of time before we see some of these talents jump to the uh, the senior side. But, you know, you're right to be talking about, you know, these teenagers 
uh, you know, playing with such, uh, you know, maturity and, and consistency already, not just, uh, you know, in the occasional meetup uh, with the under 21s, uh, you know, but also regularly in Ligue 1 as well. It's, uh, you know, it's really exciting times. And I think it adds an element of intrigue as well to have somebody as, uh, as iconic as Thierry Henry leading the team potentially uh, ahead of the Olympics uh, in Paris next summer as well. And yet, Les Espoirs very rarely ever win anything, do they? I mean, that's the, the great, the les espoirs, which means, which translates as uh, our hopes or the hopes, the hopeful, the, the, our future hopes, les espoirs. It's the France under 21 side. And um, yeah, they, as Sylvain Ripoll will, will attest, and many before him, Raymond Dominic and, and coaches that, that have uh, often struggled to try and get the best out of. France's under twenty one squad or any any France youth team actually it's a it's a curious conundrum but there's no denying the talent is there. Well, time to get a history lesson from Professor Andreas Evagora. It's something of a sequel this weekend on Le Beaujeu. He's taking us back to twenty twelve, the year after Eden Hazard's Lille won the Ligue 1 Uber Eats title. This time, it was an unknown quantity named Olivier Giroud who fired Montpellier to the title ahead of Carlo Ancelotti's PSG. July 2007, Grenoble Football Club. Coach Mecha Bazderevic is looking to prune his squad ahead of the new second division season. The Bosnian takes a final look at the club's playing staff and calls youngster Olivier Giroud into his office. The gangly 20-year-old has dreamed of playing in Ligue 1 since his childhood, but the striker's only scored two goals in two years at Grenoble, and he's about to get some terrible news. Olivier, you aren't good enough to play in the second division, let alone the first, says Bazdarevic. Sorry, but we're letting you go. Five years later, Giroud was rebuilding his career and spearheading outsiders Montpellier to a shock Ligue 1 title. As the club pulled off one of the biggest surprises in the history of French football, Giroud was more than top scorer. He symbolised the us-against-them mentality of a team made up of cast-offs and youth products. A season earlier, champions Lille were inspired by the generational talent that was Eden Azar. Giroud couldn't have been more different. After being rejected at Grenoble, he played amateur football while studying to become a physical education teacher. But those humble beginnings didn't stop Giroud launching a stellar career on the back of a quite unbelievable season. Tucked in the southwest of the country, unheralded Montpellier Ero Sport Club were also runs in French football and never had come close to winning the league until 2012. Known as La Payade, the neighbourhood where the Mosson Stadium is located, they'd finished 14th in 2011, that only their second campaign in the top flight after a long period in Ligue 2. The club was perhaps best known for its larger-than-life president, Louis Nicolas, known as Lulu, who'd made his fortune in the rubbish collection business. There's little confidence in the air, and before the 11-12 season, Lulu tells coach René Girard that nothing less than 42 points and survival would be acceptable. Not that there's significant funds. Henri Bedimo arrived for 2 million euros, but Girard was told to rely on youth team products like keeper Geoffrey Jourdrin, Mapu Yanga Mbiwa, and the mercurial Eunice Belhanda. And there were free signings like Vittorio Hilton, shown the door by Marseille. As for goals, a couple of seasons earlier, Lulu had been impressed by a promising striker at Minot's Tour during a match against Montpellier in the second division. That striker was Giroud, 
who'd worked hard on his game since that Grenoble rejection. Turning down offers from Celtic and Middlesbrough, Giroud signed for Montpellier to fulfil his dream of playing in Ligue 1. August 2011 and title talks centred on the champions Lille, Lyon, Marseille and especially PSG, who'd just been bought by Qatar Sports Investments. Montpellier were in a different financial league. They had the sixth smallest budget in the division. But that didn't stop them embarking upon a thrilling battle with PSG. Indeed, from October on, only Montpellier and PSG occupied the top two spots. There were highs and lows during a crazy season. After a December loss at unfancied Evian, Girard wished his team an unhappy Christmas holiday, adding that he never wanted to see them again. After that Evian disaster, Nicolas even feared that his team wouldn't win another game that season. But Girard had built a solid united group inspired by the so-called payade spirit of team that bonded as the season wore on. 2012 started with four straight wins. A 2-2 draw at Carlo Ancelotti's PSG in February earned a vital point. Montpellier went top with nine games to spare. Saturday, the 13th of May, 2012. Two matches left and Montpellier are three points clear. A legendary clash against third place Lille at the Mosson. Azar is sensational, but it's goalless in injury time. Then Montpellier hacked the ball out of defence. Giroud controls brilliantly on his chest, charges towards goal and finds Karim Aitfana, who strikes into an empty net. Montpellier snatched the win with the last kick of the game. The Mosson erupts. Keeper Jordan is in tears. But PSG have also won, so it's down to the last day of the season. The 20th of May 2012, the biggest day in Montpellier's history, Girard's team travelled to Auxerre with a three-point lead over PSG. The two leaders' goal difference is identical. Footage of the players on the team bus before the game shows a group that's clearly tense. The excitement of the Lille win has given way to a nervy expectation. With Montpellier needing a point, one of the most memorable nights in Ligue 1 history would follow. Before the game, the heavens open. Vadimo walks over to the Montpellier fans behind the goal. We're going to need you tonight, he said. We really need you. <laughs> 20 minutes in, disaster for Montpellier. Olivier Capo gives the hosts the lead. But with 12 minutes later, Nigerian forward John Utaka has made it 1-1. Meanwhile, PSG have gone behind at Lorient. While the focus is on Montpellier's celebrating fans, suddenly there's a disturbance at the other end. Orsay's supporters are furious. Their team is getting relegated and they throw objects onto the pitch. The match is delayed. PSG score two quick-fire goals. It's still 1-1 in Orsay and Montpellier are in the dressing room knowing defeat would mean the end of their title dream. But a brilliant late goal from Utaka seals a 2-1 win. Montpellier champions for the first and only time in their history. With 21 league goals, Giroud was launching his top-level career, one that would see him become a World Cup winner and France's all-time top goalscorer. All a far cry from that rejection at lowly Grenoble. On the pitch after that final victory, he tells reporters, this is incredible. It's why you play football to win titles, to experience moments like this. For Montpellier, 
It's just amazing. C'est indescriptible, c'est tu joues au foot pour pour être champion de France, pour vivre des moments comme ça, pour gagner des coupes, gagner des titres et c'est c'est exceptionnel pour pour Montpellier. Well, what a season that was. I I even remember as a as a PSG fan at that stage um finding it really hard to be disappointed just because Montpellier was such an incredible story. I think it's probably for for English football fans a Leicester type moment. This was this was a club that were in the second division, you know, 3 years before that. Uh, they had a they had a remarkable rise and you talk about fairy tales and Lulu Nicolin who'd spent his, you know, fortune in in that in building this club up. Um they were just a cool club with a with a good identity and they finally won something for the first time ever they'd had this is the club that had had Eric Cantona and and Carlos Valderrama when they won the French Cup in 1990 i mean that's a cool club if you've got that in your <laughs> in your history books um but never even looked like winning the league never ever and they did it with not only you know someone like John Utaka a journeyman hugely talented but but scoring goals Olivier Giroud, who, as we heard, had been around, who'd been top scorer with Tour um, the year before in the second division. Uh, Hilton, the veteran, the veteran Brazilian. But then they did it with a bunch of kids that came through the ranks there. Eunice Belonda, um, Aid Fana, uh, these guys that were just midfielders, Yangambiwa, these guys that were Geoffroy Jordren, who'd been to Clairefontaine but was, had come up and had been at the club for years. I mean, it was it was it was incredible, and and it was this thing that this feeling that Paris Saint Germain weren't ready yet. Paris Saint Germain still had all the trappings of a Paris Saint Germain. JJ, you can confirm this that that only had two league titles in their entire history before. Well, up until that point, they'd still only had two league titles: one in '86, one in '94, and they were a cup side. Paris Saint Germain were a cup side that just for some reason could never win a league title. Everything had to be perfect for them to win a league title. And here it looked like it was going to continue forever, no matter the Qatari investment. Yeah, and I think as well, it's it's quite easy to sort of forget what happened during that season as well, because PSG started the season uh, under uh, Uncle Antoine Comboare, but finished it under Carlo Ancelotti's watch. There was a number of transfers made sort of in the mid-season with the likes of Thiago Motta arriving, Maxwell as well, uh, you know, but plenty of talent in that PSG side. And I think, you know, many people really expected that PSG would just sort of uh, you know, um, bulldoze their way to the title immediately. And obviously that was proven not to be so. I have very fond memories of a fantastic 2-2 draw between PSG and Montpellier where Alex, the, the Brazilian, famed for his uh, cannon uh, and his uh, ability to, to shoot from range, uh, scored the opening goal. Uh, and I think he had uh, Belonda and uh, Utakas both scoring for Montpellier and Guillaume Warhol, uh, equalizing later on for PSG. But it wasn't enough because it was essentially sort of a battle at that point between the top two sides in the league. Uh, and just sort of going back to your point, I mean, there were just so many phenomenal names that were coming through for, for Montpellier at that time. You had Remy Cabela, you had Benjamin Stambouli as well. It was you know, it was a really solid team. You know, they had guys come through a bit later like Morgan Sanson, but, you know, I don't think from memory he was there at the time that they won that league untitled. But it was just, it, you know, it, it felt like it was meant to be from, you know, sort of a few months before the end of that season. You know, PSG were having some teething issues and we all know that the failure 
for PSG to, to win that league and title led to the likes of Thiago Silva, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Marco Verratti, Ezekiel Lavezzi all coming in later on that year uh, in the summer ahead of the following season when PSG finally did get it over the line. But uh, no, it was a, it was a fantastic, uh, you know, tussle. Uh, and like you said earlier on in the show, uh, you know, to, to see uh, Lulu Nicola, you know, celebrating, we, we've celebrated him for years for his phenomenal quotes and, and sort of his, his analogies of, uh, of things. But, you know, to see him sort of with his punk hairstyle, I think he had his hair sprayed like orange and blue to celebrate the title. But those scenes were phenomenal as much as sort of the disappointment was massive in Paris that they didn't get the immediate league on title. Uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, a real heartwarming aspect to that Montpellier title triumph. You're listening to Jonathan Johnson, Luke Entwistle and myself, Robbie Thompson on Le Bourgeois, the official league and podcast. Find us on all your podcast platforms, like, subscribe, follow, recommend. We're on Twitter at League One underscore ENG and, of course, on the web at League1.com. Now, now it's time for what is effectively a filter to find the biggest English-speaking French football boffin in the world. That's right. It's the world's most amazing Ligue 1 Uber Eats quiz in English. It's called Deja Who. And here's how it works. I spend all day leading up to uh, recording the podcast coming up with cryptic clues uh, to try and make it as difficult for you as possible. Um, And when you put all those clues into chat GPT, which, by the way, in French, sounds like you're saying, cat, I farted. If uh, you were to say it with a a French accent, chat GPT is uh, basically cat, I farted. At any rate, ChatGPT will almost certainly not be able to help you, nor will the cat, um, to try and find the answers to Deja Who. If you can get it right, you go into the running for a Ligue 1 jersey. And this month, the jersey we are giving away is Terra Moffi's OGC Nice jersey. So get your thinking caps on and listen very carefully to this. Who am I? As a teenager, I played for several teams in my homeland before impressing on trial and signing for a Ligue 1 club at just 19 years of age, with whom I went on to win a Ligue and Cup double. Over the course of my career, I lifted the UEFA Cup and won Olympic gold. I played in Italy, England, Germany, Serbia and Iran before hanging up my boots. I played with Laurent Blanc, Ronaldo, Fenomeno, Nwanko Kanu, Leonardo, Miroslav Klose, and Gabriel Batistuta, amongst others. Who am I? And what fashion statement did I become famous for on the football pitch? So there you go. See how your farting cat can deal with that. Ladies and gentlemen, get your answers in via email to league one podcast at gmail.com, league one podcast at gmail.com. If you can get the answer right, you will go into the running along with the last episode's quiz um, into the running to try and win that Terram Moffy OGC Nice jersey. Okay, now it's time for our final feature of this episode. You will have seen that Luave are back in the top flight. It's the first time in 15 years for this famous 
football club in France, famous amongst other things for a fabulous youth academy. Um, but now they're trying to make a name for themselves back in the top flight. And to tell us all about it is Jonathan Johnson. Havre Athletic Club are currently defying pre-season predictions of relegation back to Ligue 2 by sitting 13th in Ligue 1 with nine points from eight games played. Back in the French top flight for the first time since 2008, the Sky and Navy Blues are enjoying life under Slovenian head coach Luka Elsner with two wins and three draws so far. Born in Ljubljana but raised during much of his childhood in France and Nice's Fabron Quarter on a hill and five minutes from one of the country's most beautiful beachfronts, Elsner hails from a footballing family. Father Marco played for Nice over two spells in the late 1980s and early 1990s, while grandfather Branco and younger brother Rock also made their careers in the game. Luca came through the ranks with Nice and then Kenya in the early 2000s, but never quite broke through, although the family laid down strong roots in the area. Former France national team captain and Nice Youth Academy product Hugo Loris remains a close friend of both Elsner brothers, as he told L'Equipe back in 2019. I grew up with Rock. We saw each other every day with his parents and my grandparents picking us up from training sessions, said Loris. We got to know each other's families and would regularly be at one home or another. And that's how I got to know Luca, who's four years older than I am. Their father, Marco, was a club legend and they stayed in Nice, so we never lost touch. Luca returned to his native Slovenia where he enjoyed a respectable playing career with two notable spells with Domžal, where he won two top-flight league titles, a Slovenian Cup, and played for his country of birth. There were also spells in Austria and Bahrain before Elsner finished his playing days with Domžal and started his coaching adventure first as an assistant in 2012 before finally getting the top job in 2013. It was a move that he had been laying the groundwork for during the latter years as a player. Uh, yeah, it, it comes from uh, two aspects. First is that I never thought that I'd be a professional football player. So until I was 20, 22, 23 and, and my move back to Slovenia, uh, I never thought about being a, football, uh, a professional football player because I didn't have much talent especially not in France, so, um, so that's why I, I studied and prepared myself to be in football, but in another role uh, than, uh, than the player one. So, um, so I studied hard and, and tried to prepare myself to be uh, you know, a member of the staff, maybe a conditioning coach, something like that. But definitely my plan was to, was to coach at the end. Um, I coached youth teams at, uh, at that moment in France. And, uh, and then I had the luck to, to, to get the opportunity. I, I did overall quite well for my capacities and I think that I reached my maximum playing for, uh, for uh, playing in Slovenia a bit abroad and, uh, and touching the, the national team level. It gave me a lot of experience um, but the passion for coaching were, was there very early on and, uh, and I think that I, I got that from, from my grandfather who was a, a great coach, a great systematic coach with a, with a great head for pro processes and, uh, and systematical work. Um, and I had also my father who was more on the romantic side of football. So I tried to mix both um, and, and that makes you know, my identity as a, as a football coach. But uh, I stopped at 31 uh, playing football because I wanted to get early in, make mistakes early uh, and get that experience uh, as soon as possible. Elsner's three years as Domžal head coach remains his longest tenure to date with one final year with Olympia Ljubljana before leaving Slovenia in 2017 for Paphos in Cyprus. 
After one year there, he was snapped up by Union SG, and an impressive Belgian Cup run caught the eye of Amiens in Ligue 1, and in 2019, he returned to France. Unfortunately for Elsner, the 2019-20 season was ended prematurely because of COVID-19, which saw Amiens forcibly relegated to the second tier before his departure a few games into the following campaign. However, all was not lost in Amiens, as it was there that he and a veteran Mathieu Bodmer would cross paths for the first time, and it was already clear that the ex-PSG Lyon, Lille and Nice man had a future in the game beyond playing. Yeah, absolutely. I think he knew. I think that everybody who knows him uh, was aware of that. Uh, he uh, he is so passionate about football. He watches every game, watches every player. He loves young talents. Uh, he can uh, speak with president, presidents and he can speak with players and uh, and uh, and um, deliver the, the message. So uh, it was for him very logical to stay in football and uh, and get that opportunity that he used so well and and, and build. Uh, and build that uh, that squad that was able on the first season of the project to deliver that uh, amazing uh, uh, run and uh, and that title. More on Elsner and Bodmer together shortly. Next up was a half season back in Belgium with Kortrijk before fallen giant Standard Liège came knocking after a difficult start to the 2021-22 term. Elsner only saw out the end of a difficult campaign with the Reds, but of significant note in his backroom staff at Stade de Sclessin was none other than now Reims head coach Will Still. The Belgian-born Englishman is now part of a new wave of talented and young head coaches taking French football by storm after a breakout season in the Champagne region. Of course, uh, I think they've, uh, they've been very interesting. Uh, they played uh, very courageous and brave football, uh, not caring about the opponent, um, being tough for, uh, for any team producing a lot of good football. They obviously have a very good squad, uh, but I think he came you know, in, in the right moment where the, the squad needed uh, uh, a positive approach, uh, some enthusiasm, and he's the right guy for this. He's, you know, he's uh, transferring a lot of energy, he allows to, 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 to take risks, and, and that makes football interesting. So I was not very surprised that he was successful, uh, knowing what he is and, uh, and how, we coach, how he coaches. Uh, but uh, you know, there's a new season, uh, it's always difficult to confirm uh, and uh, and it will be a tough league for everybody because now being uh, with 18 clubs uh, you look at the list of the teams you're not sure who, who who's going to be in the relegation battle uh, because there's so many good teams so many big budgets um, it will be probably one of the most interesting league uh, season uh, in, in a long time. Lavre in Ligue 2 moved quickly to secure Elsner as head coach, who was reunited with Bodmer, this time in his new role as sporting director, and within 12 months, both led the Normandy side to promotion. Hack's second-tier success was the first title of Elsner's career, and now he is targeting survival in Ligue 1 as the famed youth development giants seek to re-establish themselves in the elite. Well, uh, I knew the past uh, and uh, the amazing development of the, uh, the youth uh, because it's a club that has a strong identity uh, and a strong model developing uh, young talents. Uh, and, and, and that's something that I like a lot um, and trying to combine you know, winning and, uh, and developing players. So I think one of the reasons why uh, uh, I was enthusiastic about that project is, uh, is because of that uh, possibility to work with, uh, with young players. Um, but also I wanted uh, to, uh, to work with Mathieu Bodmer, who is a sporting director, and uh, 
We, uh, we've been friends since uh, we've, we've been together at Amiens and uh, we, we think alike in terms of football and, uh, and I was sure that uh, uh, our relationship would be projective. Elsner has paid close attention to former PSG head coach Maurizio Pochettino as well as Atletico Madrid's legendary tactician Diego Simeone in forming his main coaching ideology. Lavre are now benefiting from the first few experiences of Elsner's career, which included his Amiens stint. The 1959 Coupe de France champions will hope that the best is yet to come from this promising Elsner-Bodmer tandem, which has been years in the making. Very interesting, JJ, and great to hear so much from Luca Elsner as well. What a what a strange career, and I guess that type of coach that always knew he only wanted to do one thing, um, even when he was playing. Nice to hear a, a professional footballer also say, "Look, I was never really that good," um, which I think is is what every amateur football fan wants to hear from a professional footballer every now and again. Luke, what have you made of Luav's um, fist being back in the top flight? I mean, I think it's a team that we maybe wrote off a little bit, or at least we put in the conversation about relegation, but really we ought not to have given, I mean, their form last season. I mean, until that run-in, they'd only lost, you know, that the very final couple of games. They'd only lost one game in the entire season. And we spoke earlier about the difference between Monaco and Nice and the fact that, well, it's always been said that defences win titles and they had comfortably the best defence in Ligue 1 last season. Um, their defensive solidity has kind of been added to, I'd say. I quite like Ali Wee as a, as a player, not just because of his name, which is uh, a little bit of a mouthful, but I quite enjoy it. Um, another actually has Monaco Academy product, but it seems actually like quite a well-rounded team, despite the fact that there are no superstars within it by any stretch of the imagination, and despite the fact that it isn't a team that was heavily invested in during the summer. I mean, you say it's you know it's, it's an academy team, it's a team that's always brought players through. I mean, probably the most recent example of, of, off the top of my head is probably Isaac Torre, who's now... Uh, well, went to Marseille, but is now at Lorient. So it's it's a team that has brought through some some great players. I mean, obviously Paul Pogba is a historical one, but there are others as well. And I think that ultimately it's a team that has a a long term project, and they may be something of a yo yo club. But I think that this year they definitely have enough to keep them up, given what we've seen so far. And I think a lot of that does go to Luca Elsner, but also to the structure just more generally at the club and to, to Matthew Bodmer, who um, did an incredible interview, I remember, last year to keep saying um, just how absolutely football mad he is, uh, has a room, lives in the stadium at Le Havre, watches 50 games per week, an absolute football nut, and it shows kind of on the pitch in their scouts and in their decision-making, which uh, is taking them this far and could take them further at the table between now and the end of the season. Now, Luke, I'm not one for obviously pulling people up, and I know it's not your fault, the fact that you were born many decades after myself and a couple of decades after JJ Babb, <laughs> or maybe, maybe not quite, but uh, to call Paul Pogba an historical figure, I think, yes, maybe his <laughs> career is over as, as we speak because it may be difficult for him to come back. But... Uh, yeah, Paul Pogba is one of the more recent, I think. Even I, <laughs> everything is relative. <laughs> graduates out of graduates out of um, Luav. I think for our gen, well, for my generation, and and this is one that saw the the advent of the Premier League and 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 this sort of era of nineties and and noughties football. It was um, Florent Cinema Pongol and Anthony Le Talek, who were the two that left Luav 
as kids, 16 or 17-year-olds, to go to Liverpool to Gerard Houllier's side. They were they were picked up, but they were they were two. They were the likes of more recently, you know, Mamadou Nyong was was Le Havre or or Steve Mondonda came through Le Havre as well. I think um, JJ in your in your research, what did what most impressed you about about delving into this Le Havre side? Uh, don't forget about uh, Charles and Zogbier as well. You've got uh, Riyad Mahrez, even Dimitri Payet. Uh, you yeah, know, spent Dimitri some time Payet, there. Yeah. And there's just the, the the list goes on and on. Ibrahim Barr, if you want to sort of throw it all the way back to to sort of the <laughs> the late nineties. But no, it was just it was very. I, I think the thing that struck me the most, sort of in in putting the piece together, was you only realize when you really delve into it sort of how deep those connections go for him. Uh, you know, with his time in France, because obviously he grew up. Uh, you know partly because his dad was playing in France uh, and then the fact that the family just put down their roots there became very close friends with uh, Hugo Loris as well so it's uh, it it was you know really fascinating to sort of track that kind of trajectory and then see how sort of the early days of his playing career played out uh, sorry his managerial career played out because you know it kind of felt like he was always on this journey that was going to bring him back to France at some point it was a bit of a a false dawn with Amiens, uh, you know, but it now feels like the right fit for him at uh, Le Havre. Uh, and I'm really keen to see sort of what he and Bobma can do, assuming that they, uh, you know, managed to, to stabilise Le Havre in Ligue 1 this season, which, you know, should realistically be the only sort of aim. Uh, and then sort of how they can push it on afterwards, because there is real potential, I think, for, for Le Havre to, to re-establish themselves in France's elite. You know, they've got so much going for them, not just a, a very solid team on paper with a with a good coach, but, you know, they've also got the the fantastic, uh, I, I would say, new stadium, but they've been playing in it for about 10 years now. It's just because they've been sort of down in the, the lower reaches of French football until very recently that we forget that. But, you know, the, the facilities are fantastic, uh, you know, and I think there is real potential there for Love to, uh, to, to push on uh, and sort of be the, 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 the strongest uh, example of the, you know, the, how fertile the Normandy region can be because we've had some great examples from there over the years. Caen as well, who currently are languishing in the, in the second tier, bringing through the likes of Thomas Lemar, uh, you know, guys like that. So, you know, fantastic to have, uh, you know, youth development powerhouse like Love back in the top flight. Uh, you know, and fingers crossed we get some more gems sort of of the same ilk as, uh, you know, some of the, the previous alumni. It's interesting you mentioned that, JJ. I actually commentated um, the opening, the first ever international match at the, the Stade Océan, and it was France-Uruguay back in um, 2012. And I think it was Didier Deschamps' first match in charge as well, just after Euro 2012, when he, re- when he replaced uh, Larry White in charge. So there you go. That's... Uh, so the Stade Océan is just as old as uh, Didier Deschamps' international reign as France national team coach as well. Um, very interesting. Good to hear about one of our provincial clubs that are, that, are, that are doing well and a very old one, the oldest football club in France as well, founded by uh, English sailors, I think, in the, in the Normandy port town um, back in the late 1800s. We're almost done, so time to look ahead now to the next two rounds of matches because we're a bi-monthly episode now of Le Bourgeois, so we're looking ahead to rounds 9 and 10. Round 9, first of all, gentlemen, we've got some some big games coming up. Le Havre are at home to Lens, so uh, two sides sitting 
mid-table or in the ventre mou, as the, the French would say, in the soft stomach of the, the Ligue 1 standings. Um, very, very enigmatic uh, term, for, term for it. Le Havre versus Lens. Paris Saint-Germain entertains Strasbourg on Saturday afternoon. Nice versus Marseille. Luke, I'll get your uh, a quick appraisal of that one. Lorient take on Rennes in a Breton derby. Lille versus Brest. Nantes, Montpellier. Um, Toulouse versus Reims. Monaco, Metz. So top uh, looking to maintain their grip at the top of the standings against a struggling Metz side. And then Olympic Lyonnais versus Clermont Foot. Luke, that uh, Mediterranean derby. It's not quite a cut as your derby. Marseille is a little further along the coast. It's a, it's a bit of a drive, but there's still... They're close enough for there to be a fair bit of animosity there, aren't there, between those two clubs? Yeah, a fair bit, I think it's fair to say. And obviously, recent history with a bit of crowd trouble always adds something else to the mix. I mean, a short drive, uh, an even longer train journey somehow. I think that just tells you a lot about <laughs> the trains in the region. Uh, but I think a, a really interesting match in Sora. I mean, obviously, Gattuso has already faced an Italian manager in Zerbi when he faced Brighton. He faces another Italian manager here and they couldn't really be at more opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, Gattuso is the mentality monster uh, kind of, you know, really G's up his players kind of manager. Whereas, of course, Farioli is more this methodical professor. I think I think that's kind of the contrast that's been being drawn between those two, uh, those two managers. And I think it will give, you know, it will create an interesting match. I think that Nice will naturally go into that as, as slight favourites, but... Uh, I really think it's very evenly poised, that match there. JJ, Paris Saint-Germain at home to Strasbourg. Obviously a big game, important for Paris Saint-Germain after the international break to uh, stay on winning ways. Strasbourg are, are a side that are showing signs and then just struggling a little bit under Patrick Vieira. But I'm not going to ask you about this game. I want to move down to Lyon versus Clermont. Because who would have thought at the start of the season that this would be the, 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 the match de la peur, if you like, the game of fear already nine games into the season between the only two sides without a win. And it almost is a little derby, isn't it? They're two sides in the, in the, certainly on the same latitude of, of France anyway, if, um, enough to get some good travelling support from Clermont over to uh, Group Armour Stadium. But... Uh, crazy to think that this is 17 versus 18 yeah absolutely something of a of a disaster derby and if the the pressure wasn't sort of building to the to the levels um that they're reaching at the moment around group armor stadium you know you you'd sort of fancy leon to to finally pick up their first win of the season but the i think the irony in all of this is that uh, you know even if Lyon weren't to be beaten, they could be overtaken in the table by Clermont if the disciplinary committee does decide to award them the three points for that uh, you know the the mess at Montpellier. <laughs> so you know a lot is riding on this for for Fabio Grosso and Lyon. You know again the the last couple of weeks have been sort of dominated by a bit a bit of upheaval at the club. Uh, you know there's murmurings about uh, sort of a bit of uh, you know discontent uh, at the very top of the the hierarchy. You know you've got certain members of the backroom staff leaving as Fabio Grosso stamps his uh, stamps his authority on 
uh, sort of on the on the playing and coaching staff. So it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, sort of how this one plays out. It did look as if Lyon, you know, might finally get their first points of the season against Lorient, but then a couple of, you know, absolutely phenomenal goals denied them that, as we already touched on. So, you know, this one has to be, a, it, it, this is a must-win game for, for Grosso and Lyon because the longer that they go without picking up their first three points of the season, the greater uh, you know this pressure will be and if they can finally get uh, you know a victory on the board perhaps they can start moving up the table uh, you know like a loss for example but you know this is the tricky kind of game where Clermont will I mean they'll they'll look at the situation knowing that they may well end up with three points from the Montpellier game and feel like they have nothing to lose and that's very dangerous for Leon against a team that did extremely well uh, against all odds uh, last season. You've heard of demolition derbies before, but this is the disaster derby. Olympic Lyonnais versus Clermont Foot coming up this weekend on Ligue 1. Thank you, JJ, for that. And then the next week, week 10 of the season, um, more huge matches coming up. JJ, I'll give you your chance now to tell us a little bit about Paris Saint-Germain, even though you'll have to get out the crystal ball a little bit, but PSG on the road to Brest. Now that as well, we're talking of surprises, I, for one, am just astonished every time I look at the ladder and see Brest in the top five. I just can't, doesn't equate, it doesn't, just doesn't add up in my brain, but they're there, they're doing something right. Um, and Paris Saint-Germain, you know, we'll have to wait and see if they've turned the corner under under Luis Enrique. But um, what do you make of this one coming up? Yeah, absolutely. Really uh, appetizing. And I don't think many of us would have expected to say that about Brest PSG at the beginning of the season or even just a couple of weeks ago. But it has. It's been a very unexpectedly convincing start to the season for, for Brest. And, you know, while PSG still look a bit patchy from time to time, certainly when they're up against sort of, I guess, what you could respectfully term sort of like the the non like elite band of, of clubs that they come up against in Ligue 1 uh, you know they run the risk of uh, of dropping points we saw you know Clermont a hapless Clermont uh, you know claim a point against them uh, you know a couple of weeks ago with Maury Dior uh, you know coming back to, to haunt his old club so you know I think Brest will fancy their chances there a lot will obviously depend on what happens for PSG against Strasbourg uh, you know whether Mbappe can get himself back amongst the goals but also they've got that important Champions League clash uh, with Milan, the first part of a double header coming up. So it's shaping up to be a, a crucial couple of weeks for, uh, for for PSG. Also in round 10 of the season, Clermont versus Nice. Reims against Lorient. Lens v Nantes in, in one for the nostalgics. Lille take on AS Monaco. That's coming your way in a moment, Luke. Metz versus Havre, Montpellier, Toulouse. Rennes v Strasbourg. So uh, a bit of the Julien Stefanico before the big Olympico, where Olympic de Marseille take on Olympic Lyonnais. That will be another test for the two coaches. I have a feeling we've spoken enough about Marseille and Lyon, so we'll, we'll review that one in a couple of weeks' time when it comes up. But Luke, Lille versus Monaco. Now, this is a Lille side that are flattering to deceive a little bit at the moment this season. What There's... I think a lot of us were expecting, you know, Paolo Fonseca to continue good work from last year to get this little side really, really humming. They've they've held on to, you know, Jonathan David, at least for the time being. They're a side that, you know, I think we're starting to expect a little bit more from. Are we going to see that against Monaco? 
I mean, yeah, I think Fonseca has been trying to downplay that a little bit. I think he's he's cut a bit of a frustrated figure in his pre-match press conferences recently, saying that he doesn't feel as though he's sufficiently backed in the transfer window, that his team are actually weaker now than they were last season. I, I think, you know, keeping players like Jonathan David, who were very much expected to have left, I think that that's only can only be kind of a huge, huge positive for, for Lille. But yeah, not everything is very merry there. And he's talking about not being able to necessarily compete with your Monaco's and your PSG's. And I don't really see why they can't compete with maybe not PSG, but at least your Marseille's and your Monaco's because it's, it's, a, it's a big club. Um, yeah, they're flashing to deceive. I think that the Faroe Islands trip uh, was a bit of a low point. I think that was the first point ever received by a team from mm. the Faroe Islands in European competition, handed to them on a plate by Lille, who, as a mitigating st- circumstance, you know, they were actually resting lots of players for that game against Lens, and that almost paid off because I thought that they did look quite impressive against Lens, but they're dreadfully inconsistent, uh, you know, perfectly capable of getting a draw against Lens, who do look revitalised now, I think it's fair to say, but also capable of being hammered by Lorient. You know, this is a a very, very inconsistent side this year. Um, Who knows? You know, you're talking about having to look into the the kind of crystal ball and it feels like that you're doing that every single week with Lille because you, well, and you're not seeing anything too clearly because, you know, every week you can predict one thing and it can be wildly uh, the other way. So, yeah, hard, hard to see and hard to know which Lille team will turn up for that Monaco clash. And I think given Monaco's form, I think you'd back them to potentially win that. Although I do think that over time, Lille will look at least a little bit more solid with Titi kind of bedding in and the very, very promising Lenny Euro of Nets from as well. I, th- I think that there is the, the makings of a really, really strong centre-back partnership. So I think it's a team that maybe will start to hit its stride as the season progresses. You are listening to Luke Entwistle, Jonathan Johnson, myself, Robbie Thompson. That's it for today's episode of Le Bourgeois. Don't forget to get involved in the conversation on X. It always sounds weird, still sounds weird saying that. Just Let's just call it Twitter for another little while. At Ligue 1 underscore E-N-G for English. Ligue 1 underscore E-N-G for English. Of course, you can find the podcast, subscribe, give us a rating, five stars, preferred, tell your friends, recommend us, and get everyone listening to Le Bourgeois. And of course, you can catch everything that moves every day of the week on league1.com. We will be back in two weeks' time with a review of all the action in rounds 9 and 10, looking ahead to 11 and 12. We are past the quarterway mark of the season already, and it's Monaco leading the way. We're going to take our uh, look back at the history with our latest episode of Ligue 1 Legends and who won the league. I think we're probably up to a certain Paris Saint-Germain's first title win or thereabouts or the beginning of their incredible run as well. We'll be looking for the next international bright young thing in our young player profiles and uh, plenty, plenty more as well. JJ, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure and uh, look forward to the next one. Luke, you too. Enjoy uh, the Riviera and the South Coast. Merci beaucoup. The weather is turning. Not too much more to enjoy. I think we're going to be quite Parisian weather here, you know, pretty, pretty soon, I'm afraid. Hey, hey, hey. Well, it is a winter sport. We love getting rugged up and going to the football as well. Thank you for joining us from me, Robbie Thompson, and all the team here, producer Stephen and all our contributors, Andreas Evagora as well. We'll see you again in two weeks' time. Au revoir. Oh, my word, what a goal! Got a Lovely 
delivery. Getting Doozy's header. Here's an opportunity. Sanchez. Outrageous goal. 